Now, um, there's heaps to talk to you about. And the, the weird thing is, I guess some people watching, maybe, you know, they, they don't know who you are and what you've done. So there's a temptation to go back right to the beginning and get you to go over all that again. Um, but basically, you know, Rob's a journalist. He's been a, a, a rugby league administrator uh, and he's an author. And he is responsible for rugby league being played in about 10 countries in um, Central and South America, um, which is, makes him uh, the number one pioneer ever, I think, uh, as far as uh, if, you, if, you, if you're counting countries, I don't think anyone uh, can lay claim to actually starting the game in, in that many countries. But there's, a, uh, but there's a couple of things Rob's got going at the moment that I... Uh, by the way, Annie Massey, I have to always mention her VIP patron, Annie Massey, White Life Fever Live. Uh, patreon.com forward slash whiteline fever. But there's two things I want to talk to. One is with State of Origin on the horizon is uh, is Robert's uh, new book, Maroon Mentality. Um, welcome, Robert. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what Maroon Mentality is about, What what where the idea came from, how you're executing it, how you're putting it out, what sort of reaction you've got? Sure. So really, as opposed to all the books that focus on Mal and Wally and Alfie and the, the main Queensland stars. Uh, this one encompasses all 203 State of Origin players to represent Queensland uh, since 1980. And really, it's it's a look at what formed them, what were their formative experiences before, say, the ages of 18 to 20, uh, that then went on to shape their life. And I guess the the thing for, for most of us who've enjoyed rugby league or played rugby league, we wonder what separated those guys who got to play State of Origin from the rest of us and what contributed to their mental resilience. Uh, and it's an interesting look at, you know, so, some of the things that tested them and um, also some little bits like hidden family history. We go back, many of them, through several centuries to determine where their families came from and some of the interesting characters in their um, ancestry. So it's, it's not so much about the tries and the goals scored or who was the hero on such and such a day, but more about, I guess, almost like a child psychology look at where they all came from and, and um, what shaped them as people. And and this sounds like an enormous uh, endeavour. So how, how, from from conception to execution to release, like what sort of period are we talking? I really punched this out quickly. Like when you say conception, I did think of it like many years ago, but from the moment I wrote the first chapter to the last, it's probably about three and a half months. Wow. I set myself a schedule where I was up at four o'clock every morning um, and I would probably finish writing about eight o'clock at night and I did that for three and a half months straight. So I was wow. very disciplined compared to how I have been in the past. My previous book took me about 15 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I'm nowhere near that discipline at the moment. Like I've kind of got words down in two tribes and I had the requisite number of words but not the requisite amount of content where the story tells itself. And, um, and I'm now going, oh, an hour here, an hour there. I really need to go back into um, that level. I can't possibly hope to achieve that level of discipline that you're, you've shown. So... Um, Tell me about, um, and just from the people out there who are involved in publishing and merchandising and, and writing, tell me about how you decided to get it printed and how you decided to market it and, 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 and what uh, formats it's available in. Sure. Yeah, well, I guess I really took the approach that I wanted to make sure it got out there and in the right time frame. So 
I took as much of it into my own control as I could and published with a small uh, publisher where I basically controlled everything, retained the rights. And um, as of today, I've actually signed with that to go to a bigger publisher. So um, that's one of the benefits. Yeah, cheers. Uh, So was able to reap the rewards of doing a bit of self-marketing and just putting it out there. And uh, thankfully that's been seen and maybe opens the door for a few more projects down the track. I'm going to make sure I don't ask sort of... um, Yeah, definitely. Keep talking. What's that? Uh, I was just saying, yeah, basically it's all been social media and people that I've known through, you know, I was was the Queensland correspondent for Rugby League Week for, you know, 17 years. So country-wise out in the country pubs and, the, you know, the local clubs, that sort of thing, I've built up a nice little network of people who are in that niche area of grassroots footy and interested in where Queensland origin players would come from and what happened to them as kids. So uh, it's not a little bad audience to tap into yeah that's awesome if you've got all the sort of parents and grandkids and uh kid and now especially we are talking grandkids now then that's a, a good head start um so what happens to the what happens to the copies that you've already printed like do you lose any rights now you've signed with a major publisher yeah i'll, I'll have less rights they'll have more control how it gets it'll be rebranded and but they'll they'll do it also you know a bit more justice they'll probably have some more photos in there I'll spend a bit more time on presentation. Uh, they'll give me a wider reach than, than what I had before. Uh, so I'm, I'm weighing that up against, you know, the things that I will lose. Obviously, when, you, when a big publisher comes along, you lose a degree of your percentage. And um, if you are someone who likes to be very tight with editorial control, then you probably have to loosen the reins a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm at the stage where I've already tested the water initially with it, and I'm happy to do that. Yeah, yeah. Now you said it is called maroon mentality, not origin mentality. So, um, was that out of necessity as far as your marketing and your contacts, or was that was it, well, you knew more about Queensland, or is there a maroon mentality? Is it different to, to New South Wales? Yeah, well, I think there's always been that that sense that Queensland could lift for it and go against the odds. Uh, and, and I think Queenslanders do feel that perhaps they own origin a little bit more so than New South Wales people do. Um, you know, I'm sure that the Blues disagree, but that's that's a general feeling here. Uh, also, as I say, it was, it was my strength. I know a lot of the people from the grassroots clubs around Queensland. I know a lot of the players from my time. Um, and simply being able to cover 203 players in enough depth, uh, I think if I added in you know, another 300 and something New South Wales players, it would just blow me out of the water for size and, and print loads and everything. So yeah. 203 players is a nice amount to, to top it off at. And how, so did you try to contact all of them? Like all of them are still alive or the families of all of them are still alive or did you did you pick people that you, you were friends with, you know? I, I made an effort to contact all of them except for say the bigger guys like Mal, et cetera, because I know they wouldn't tell me anything they haven't told anyone before. Mm-hmm. So what I did with the, those guys who've sort of been pasted to death was was go looking for things that other people weren't looking for, such as, you know, um, I've got people's report cards of their parents and stories from people they knew when they were younger and just trying to find the obscure things that haven't been picked up before or maybe something that's been printed or published before but never really got a big run in the, the wide mainstream media. But 
there was more than 130 interviews completed for the book out of the, the 230. And then those, um, you know, there was only a couple of players that didn't want to participate. So uh, I've got to say, by and large, you know, probably a really big thanks to the Fogs. Uh, considering people's view of footballers sometimes, I think they were very, very um, easily approachable, especially in comparison to how you would go at an NRL game. And that, that was probably a thing you all relate to is of the people that didn't want to participate, most of them were the later generation. So the earlier generation were very happy to have a chat. Was Martin Bella one of them or? <laughs> let's, um, let's say perhaps Martin Bella was the most, um, the most difficult to deal with. <laughs> it's funny because I always used to go really well with Martin and when he played. Um, I mean, before the Cowboys first trial match, he came around to my sister's house in Mackay and took me out like to his farm and stuff. But when I would ring him in later years for origin retrospectives, he just would say, no, I don't want to do it. He just, you know, so, but that's what made him Martin Bella, I guess. Um, um, anyway, um, yeah, okay, so, so this, like, obviously it sounds amazing and I feel bad that I haven't, I haven't read it yet. And you, when you're interviewing an author, you should never admit to the audience that you haven't read the book. You should pretend that you have but I haven't <laughs> read it. But I was actually very fascinated. I have to put my glasses back on now um, um, because you did a story for Everything Rugby League and it really was, I think it's like, I can't believe there's no comments under it um, because it's basically a handbook for doing what you've done. I know I've got to, I'm not mentioning it because I've got to mention it in the first paragraph. My mention is purely um, incidental. Um, but, but you talk about what you need to remember um, if you're involved in trying to spread rugby league to a, a new um, area. And I, I guess it means actually, um, you know, trying to get people playing in a new area. But a lot of the points could apply to just working in rugby league, trying and being involved in rugby league and being anything but the governing body, which is I've tried recently in many different angles. And I think some of these lessons apply. And I think viewers, listeners will benefit from from some of these and, and this is how you survive how you come out of it sorry even if you probably weren't talking about rugby league i think some of these are probably taking any product to a new market kind of lessons as well yeah yeah so if we could go through them and the first one is focus on the community impact not personal impact what, what do you what do you mean by that robert um basically i just like I always wanted to go in there and just show it was possible. I knew there was enough players there to form a Latin American team, but I had no designs on becoming, you know, all these things that, that happen later on, you know, being a president of Latin Heat and, and being a delegate in this or that or, or helping this country out. I, I just basically wanted to be someone who showed it could be done and then probably throw my hands up in the air and say, there you go, there's a template for it. Um, but I was was perhaps a little bit unprepared for um, how well um, resourced the International Rugby League was with personnel and with funding. So my concept that I could prove it could be done and then someone would take it off my hands and run with it was um, perhaps a little bit short-sighted. Um, but I think by doing that approach and then thinking, oh, I want to form a nine-a-side, then I'd like to form 13-a-side, then individual nations, one, one thing just fell in front of the other and uh, it all sort of tended to take care of itself uh, and uh, the, the long involvement that's now eight years or so I guess has um, come about as a result of uh, 
of just putting one foot in front of the other and completing those those little steps rather than having designs on wanting to you know wanting to ascend to a certain position or um, have control for a certain number of years. It just came about through wanting to do something for the community, and that was a byproduct. And that didn't charge. I just had to get up and close the windows because there's some ambient noise here. It's a digger. Um, but um, that, that, did that change when you saw the landscape? You, that, you, you just held on to that throughout or did, did, that, did that evolve that you, was that a kind of like a reinvention of your approach when you look back? You know what I mean? Like or, that, that you didn't want, it wasn't about yourself and, and you just wanted to prove something could be done. Did that, is that a, a conclusion you arrived at or was it a conclusion that it was an aim that you had at the start and you stuck to? Um, I think at the first part it was a conclusion. As I say, I wasn't I wasn't prepared that, that I had to stick around and and see it out after I sort of showed it could work. And then afterwards, I I wanted to stick to that mindset because I saw that it worked and it allowed me not to get too far ahead of myself. And you know, uh, I, I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with um. There, there is a balance. Sometimes you have to self promote a bit because no one knows about what you're doing. Otherwise, especially in Latin America where I'm one of the few people who speaks English, um, you know, natively. So um, a lot of the things that happen over there just never see the light of day. But when I do do a little bit of self-promotion, it tends to deflect or reflect of what's happening there. So you do have to become comfortable with, with that to a degree. Now, um, don't try and stay in power, try and stay useful. What do you mean by that? Oh, definitely. I think this is probably the most important one is... Um, yeah, you see a lot of people come in and they say, well, I started rugby league in such and such a country, therefore I should be the president, the national coach, whatever else it is. Um, and I think yeah, I've heard people before when they say, oh, I think such and such is going to take over or I think um, I deserve this position but someone else is going to come in and, and do this, That that's it's probably completely the wrong mindset because there's very few people get paid in the game. Um, and if you're a volunteer, people's need for you only extends so far as you're useful. So if you really want to be involved at the, the forefront and all the interesting things that, that happen, like, you know, this the World Cup opportunity that's coming up is amazing, but I know I could be replaced tomorrow in an instant, no matter how much um, work or time I've put into it at all. And you've just got to be able to um, cop that on the chin, I guess. You know, if a country doesn't need you, they don't need you. And um, it's, it's got to be what's about the best for rugby league and not about your own ego. Like I have had people before come up and say, well, I, I've been involved for four or five years. Why aren't I, you know, selected for this team? And, you know, rugby league's a, an unforgiving sport. You're, you're, uh, you've got to be amongst the, the cream of the crop and be able to, um, you know, prove, prove that you're of, of major use and benefit to the organisation and to be able to grow the sport. Otherwise, it leaves you behind. Volunteers don't get severance packages, do they? Um, there's no NDAs or, or sometimes they might want to force that upon you. But, uh, yeah, um, okay. Uh, keep money out of it as much as possible. What, what, what can you say about that? Uh, I just found, for me, and it probably reflects my personality as well, is that I'd really try to leave any sort of, um, you know, trying to make money off the players out of it or, I don't, I'm not a fan of charging fees. I would rather raise everything in sponsorship or um, collect it through fundraising, et cetera. Um, 
there are people out there who want to run it and when they receive a lot of footballs from the IRL or from the Asia Pacific Rugby League or Rugby League European Federation, they will on-sell those balls at a cost. Um, you know, little practices like that, which probably does make some monetary sense and you do have to keep yourself afloat. But I think if you're, um, you're charging the end user, you're inevitably going to drive down interest and people will see you as a bit of a uh, money-hungry person. And then, of course, as we talked about struggles for power, the more that people think they're going to become rich by running the game, the more people want to take over that have no idea of running the game. So uh, it's, it's something you've always got to be careful of. Um, you, this is great. Uh, this is a great format. I'm glad I scrambled to find this story online before you called. Um, be, be, true <laughs> your, be true in your intentions. Uh, can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, that, that probably just reflects a bit more of the last uh, in that if you're going in to develop the sport, make sure you're doing it because of that, not because you want to, you know, be the, the new kingpin in the new country or you want to make, um, you know, make a couple of quick dollars out of it or it's a segue to opening your business or those type of things. I think if you go in there and you, you're someone who genuinely lo- loves rugby league and you want to see more people playing the game, then just let that hang out and be open and try and help people out as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. What if your intention is to uh, help open a new business or, <laughs> or, or, or get a longer email list? <laughs> you to... uh, you, you've got to be open about it, but I think the longer email list is not probably going to win too many friends. I think if you want to open a business, it's fair enough if you're upfront about what you're doing. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Be fiercely loyal, but don't believe this will always be uh, reciprocated. What can you, uh, is that that's obviously comes from experience, I guess, and maybe a few specific experiences. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. I think, uh, yeah, loyalty counts for so much in rugby league, on the field, off the field. Uh, and it's best that you, you try and find people that you, uh, you have a, a level of trust with and stick with them through thick and thin. Um, but you know, eventually you will have people that burn you that you've either invested a lot of money or a lot of time or a lot of um, maybe emotion, you know, a lot of friendship or, or expectation in a particular person uh, and it won't happen. But my experience is, you know, you, you throw yourself at the good of the world and 80 to 90% of the time the, the good comes back to you. It's only occasionally, um, you know, the bad returns and if that happens to you, you kind of just got to pick yourself up and move on and. Um, you know, someone who's disloyal, they've got to carry themselves with that. And someone who's loyal, they can, um, you know, even if you've been hurt and you've been made to look a fool, you can probably go to sleep at night feeling reasonably okay about yourself. Yep, yep. Number six, be there. What do you mean by that? There's a lot of people you see um, yelling directions from different continents or from different states or... Um, different cities about what everyone should be doing. Um, but I've found there's a lot of value in trying to be at as many training sessions as you can, be at all the events. I think the first six or so years of Latin Heat, um, I missed one junior event that was on the same day as another, but all the others even, you know, flew into Sydney or flew into Latin America or flew into the USA so you could be there for for all of them because I wanted to build the feeling that it was a family and that someone cared about each of these people. Um, and yeah, I, I think I've just noticed a couple of countries where 
people in totally different parts of the world and they're, they're shouting instructions that, you know, they're, because they haven't got skin in the game, people aren't listening to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, believe in it, say it will be done. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, massive lesson this one. And I think, um, you know, just probably a good thing for anyone to pick up in general life. Probably something I got from working in gyms for a while is just being really positive about what is to be done. Um, because it, you get a lot of people, and, and I've met quite a few along the way, that will say, oh, we'll just um, we'll have a go, see if we can get a team together. Um, we'll schedule a few loose dates and we might get something happen. And then, you know, that, that nervousness just rubs off on people straight away. You've really got to be convinced about setting a date. This is the venue. We're going to have a game. It's going to be X country against X country. And we're both going to get all the players we need. And then it's it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but also you have to do everything within your power to, to make it happen. So it's like you're signing a contract yeah. to do everything possible to, to turn it into reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Um, value opinions, develop a good filter, limit negativity. Can you speak on that briefly? Or as yeah. long as you want, actually. Uh, what was that? Or as long as you want, speak about it for ages. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah for, for me, probably yeah, the big one I struggle with, I, I tend to be someone who does everything by committee. I like to get everyone's opinions and be worried that what I've come up with is not the best idea to start with. And um, particularly, you know, probably for the, the first 30 years of my life, I was very much like that. You go around in circles, but I found... You know, at the start, we were having 13 people on the committee and a lot of good ideas would go there and it'd either take months to get them through or they'd be changed and then you'd come back and you'd have the same meeting about the same one next week. So you've got to learn what level to value those opinions at, filter out the ones that probably don't have a lot of um, pragmatic or practical application. Uh, and, yeah, negativity, I think, is, is a huge one. Like, you will find some people that are just fixated on being contrarians or, um, you know, naysayers about whatever is going to occur, um, whether that's within your organisation or the way that the rest of the organisation is treated. And I've seen, you know, particular teams where that mindset, it filters through to the players and then suddenly all oh, the world's against us and this isn't happening because everyone's against us. And again, it's it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you think that way, most times it will turn out that way. So uh, I think in grassroots and development sports should be a beautiful thing, you know, a wonderful thing where you're full of a lot of positivity and leads to positive life outcomes. So uh, surround yourself with positive people who find uh, answers to problems and, and not uh, problems for answers. <laughs> That's a good one. What about um, consistently self-analyse or constantly self-analyse how you are holding the team or sport back? That must be difficult to do when you feel you're on a bit of a roll and you feel things are going right to still be looking, well, what am I doing wrong, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest, I probably do this every week. Um, you know, it gets to every Thursday, Friday, and I think about what have I done this week that um, has held the organisation back? What could I have done better? Could someone else have done a better job, etc.? cetera? Um, I, th I think it's been pretty healthy um, in all respects, but... I do mention in there, and I think you've touched on this once before, is just about some of the people who are deeply ingrained within the game probably have held it back without even being conscious of it because you tend to limit yourself to 
what your technological level of knowledge is or what your knowledge of finance is or um, I, I think, you know, some places out there, they only want a certain level of player to play because they know that once the once it gets to an elite athlete level, that there's probably not going to be room for any of them or their friends or the people they've worked with since the start. So um, subconsciously, they don't go looking for a higher level of athlete or more and more people because they know if there's eight teams compared to four, then a lot of their friends are going to miss out on the national team or the rep team, etc. cetera. Um, but I, I don't think people do that on purpose. I think it just kind of, it kind of happens um, because they're, they're limiting themselves to in what they see around themselves. It sounds like you're pretty good with transitions though, Robert, like you're good at like, this was part of my life for like five years or 10 years or whatever, or a year or six months, whatever. Um, and it was it, it consumed me, and now I'm just going to move on to the next project, and I'm not going to look back at all, which is not not common. People people crave routine and they crave familiarity, so they can organise their day. You know what I mean? Um, so so I, I guess mm, I, it's not it's not a real common um, trait that people have. Maybe part of it is personality, but I think also it's a learn defense mechanism as well because as i spoke about those people that that go into countries and say you know i i set this up i should be the president i should have the rights with the government etc you the only only place you can go from there is down you know if you think you're top of the game you're going to get toppled at some stage or other um so that day is going to come for everybody uh so you're best prepared and be uh, be able to see it from a practical point of view of how you remain relevant rather than uh, just trying to enforce that you are relevant. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I've kind of thought, sort of been grappling with recently, it's not like I'm giving my own, I'm, I'm on my own couch and I'm my own psychologist, but um, it is, the world is like full of possibilities and there's so many cool things to do and you don't want to limit yourself um, um, by discounting any of them but if you're thinking about them all, all the time, you kind of get nothing done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, you, you mean you've got a book on the go and you're obviously taking Brazil to the World Cup, which we'll talk about in a minute and stuff like that. And just, you almost have to control your own excitement sometimes about all the stuff and not, and not sort of reflect on your own enthusiasm or excitement too much and, 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 and actually just go ahead and do those things. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's it's a weird. Oh, that now I'm sort of talking about my own personality a little bit. But you've got so many different things on the go, and that is a um, it, they can be good things or bad things. But even if they're all good things, it's still it's still a challenge, isn't it? You know. Yeah, and I think it's you know you're you're hundred percent right to reflect on yourself because I think both of us as rugby league tragics, we've got that degree of obsessiveness about us. So it's what drives you to become a good rugby league rider because you remember all these nuanced things that nobody else is, you know, bothered to remember or could remember. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You, you take on so many challenges and I, and right at this moment, I am at a point of um, starting to rationalize those and, you know, perhaps a little bit of a scoop, but I don't think we'll, we'll see Latin heat exist, you know, past next week, maybe. So really? yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Robert? So uh, because, Basically, the, the people who are left as directors have got so much on their plate and um, 
you know, the, the Latin American Federation is being talked about by the International Rugby League. It effectively um, formally replaced what was a volunteer charity organisation, which is a good thing. Yep. Um, rather than being those those old haggard men who are clinging on by our fingertips, then it's best we say, great job. You know, we got it to where it wanted to be. Um, and, you know, perhaps some of those, the smaller countries now, so, you know, Chile, Brazil, Colombia, uh, Peru, et cetera, they're, they're kind of set up and they're on their way. And I'm sure Argentina will be rejoining soon. But some of those smaller countries like, you know, say um, an Ecuador or a Uruguay, now is perhaps the time for their leaders to, to come to the forefront and if they want um, to form, you know, little little groups like Latin Heat, then, then now's their time to drive that so they can get themselves to a position that's equal with everyone else. Because if, if Chile and Brazil are leading the way, what, you, what you're kind of getting all the time is the people who are the most preoccupied, who've got the most competitions to administer, are then sort of in charge of, leading these other countries and you don't have you don't have time and you're not giving it everything you could do so um we don't want to hold those nations back from blossoming either now i want to move on to brazil we haven't got all day uh, but i do want to another kind of more esoteric thing which i spoke about with tony collins on this show is is what what is rugby league really when you know we look back 125 years to the george and that was a division and it was purely an administrative um, schism where the sport looked the same for the next sort of seven years, more or less, um, or the next, no, the next 12 years. It still had breakaways in, until 1907. So we've had much bigger actual schisms since. Um, you know, hugely different things where, the, you know, the, the rules changed and the, uh, we had the, obviously two competitions in Australia in 1997. But, you know, we've got... Uh, uh, you know, the amateur game and the professional game in this country were in separate camps. Um, you know, we've got uh, seven aside, you know, 13 aside, 13 aside playing under different rules. So, so we, it's, I guess we, we kind of um, venerate 1895, but in many ways we've had bigger stinks amongst ourselves since. And the only thing that really defines rugby league, well, well looking at it objectively, um, the only thing that really defines rugby league is it's run by rugby league administrators. Uh, it's, yeah, it seems otherwise, otherwise, it's it's just some people chasing um, a, a, a pig's bladder around the field. And so, from your point of view, in trying to develop the sport in in uh, new territories within the structures of rugby league uh, and within the structures set out by the International Federation, which themselves. Um, um, change all the time. And this actually, your answer to this might actually, even though I don't know what you were doing in 1997, but your answer to this might actually get into my book is you must have contemplated the, the um, whole concept of loyalty and disloyalty to the sport very carefully in, in your journey, you know, and that if I, if I go outside the structures set down by the local federation or the international federation, um, am I being disloyal to the sport and has this ceased to be rugby league? Um, what makes it rugby league and what actually is loyal and what is disloyal in your, in, in, in your understanding? Wow. <laughs> yeah, definitely I've considered that, but that, geez, man, that's a, a really hard one um, to think about. But, mate, when you talk about Brazil, what sort of brings it to the forefront is 
you know, many of our leading players always say to us, um, I just wish no one would talk about rugby league versus rugby union. Like they don't see any problem. You know, they would come and play rugby union three days a week and rugby league the other four days a week. And they don't have any issue at all. And they, I hate, I absolutely hate when people from Australia and from England or from New Zealand hop on to all these developing nations and say, you have to say rugby league, you know, and they, it becomes this sermon of, of, um, you know, semantics about how important it is to have this second word. These people couldn't care less. They would want to play the game because they love sport. They love being active. And a funny thing with Brazil is that the women play sevens. There's, there's very little 15-a-side rugby union. Now, all the club competition is sevens. So for them, rugby league is, you know, it's extremely similar to what they're used to. Um, and for them, it's a little bit hard to understand why there's two um, organising bodies. But for us, we're very lucky because they're bringing, some of them are bringing across skills which are exactly what are needed um, for the task at hand. Um, you go back to, you said about what's loyalty and what's disloyal. I remember writing an article when they first um, cancelled the Emerging Nations World Cup and said that there were people out there who were saying, why don't we take the game away from the International Rugby League? Because, um, you know, the Emerging Nations in particular didn't feel like they were, were being listened to. Uh, but as much as I reported everyone's views upon that, I, I just feel that so many people have volunteered their life's efforts into making it grow as one that it's quite maybe selfish to rip it away and, and go in another direction. And it's, it's easier and more of a, well, not easier, um, probably more a sign of integrity to change the sport from within. And I think particularly at the moment, the last five years, the sport has shown that it is willing to transform itself and people will listen to you at the top level if you, go about it the right way and follow the right channels. Like America's Federation, I don't think if we had the same power structure as seven years ago, that we would be talking about that for another 20 years. So, mm. but people are open to that. There's Chile got a chance to qualify for the Men's World Cup. Brazil got a chance to qualify for the Women's World Cup. Um, if, if we want to keep whinging, there's, we, we probably don't have a lot left to whinge about. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you just keep subdividing and subdividing. So I guess... I guess the, the, where the line needs to be drawn is you kind of, if, you, if you're so dissatisfied that you just cannot work with the current administration, then have a break until the administration changes or, or just go away. <laughs> you know what I mean? That maybe, that's, maybe that's where the line, the line is of what loyalty is. And it, it is who's running it now. You need... That is what rugby league is. It is defined by its administration, and it, you know, um, and you may not like it anymore, but you f you are free to not like rugby league anymore. It's okay. You don't have to. You can just yeah. go away and like something else. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, try and change it constitutionally. You know, from yeah. from within. Most of these organisations have a constitution and a board, um, and politicking becomes part of the game. You've got to. You know, if your voice isn't being heard, then you've got to take that to a higher authority or, or get people on side and um, change the structure from within so it does benefit everybody after a while. Yep, don't make the same mistake they made in Huddersfield 125 years ago. <laughs> We'd all be happy <laughs> family. Don't do what they did. Don't be that guy. Um, okay, uh, finally, um, uh, Brazil at the Women's World Cup. You're the team manager. Um, I think you've had some sponsorship announcements recently or you've got some coming up. So can you just give uh, everyone an update on that? 
Yeah, uh, so Agrimix recently come on board as um, our sponsor of our back of our jersey, and they're a, a Queensland-based company uh, that deals in pastoral seeds, which is probably something a bit different for rugby league, but obviously Brazil's a very big agricultural company, and a uh, nice little story to that about how their, um, their, their in-house scientist, he was a grew up in a small farming town in Brazil. He used to sell water at the lights to get a bus to training, and um, he... Once he got the job over here, um, he's got three universities, degrees, a master's, et cetera. So, you know, he's, he's a successful person in life. Uh, and now he wants to give back. Uh, so they'll be on the back of the jerseys. We still do have the front of the jerseys available. Um, and in comparison to what you can get with most teams, I think, to be on Brazil's kit when we're a little bit the flavour of the month, it's, it's very easy, like a, a short spot. You're starting at, like, US $2,000, which is nothing to be on all games BBC live streamed and one quarter of, you know, the, the national population of Australia watches every game. So um, you're, uh, there's, there's a chance there you don't have to be associated with Brazil. You could be someone who's in the, the Australian market, in the English market, and it just goes to, um, you know, more of those. It, it allows you to hit two or three markets at once rather than just your domestic market. That's awesome. That's awesome, mate. And uh, is there any, are there any sort of channels or I guess you want to tell people how they can contact you if they want to sponsor Brazil or how they can get hold of your book. Um, so uh, yeah, go for your life. Sure. So probably the best and easiest way is you can look for Brazil Rugby League on Facebook, um, Brazil Rugby 13 on, on Twitter, also on LinkedIn. Um, so you can message us there or want to find out more information. Uh, and as far as the book goes, again, Maroon Mentality on Facebook um, or just type Maroon Mentality Paperbook or Maroon Mentality Robert Bergen into Google and it's the first thing that pops up there as well. So um, nice and easy rather than remembering long URLs. Yeah, that, that was awesome. That was really good, man. I could already see myself, uh, if I ever find the time, uh, cutting up those 10 uh, grabs, how to, you know, things to remember when you're starting Rainbow League in a new place and sort of tweeting them out in order. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, but that's that's maybe I'll get around to doing that in time for the 2025 World Cup. Um, thanks for your time, <laughs> Robert. It was awesome. Man, I got I got so, I got heaps out of it, and particularly your uh, amazing discipline in getting your book uh, done in three and a half months. Um, I'm going to go <laughs> straight back to the couch now and work on mine. So I'll say hey, thanks, thanks very much for your time, Robert. And um, I already recommend. Uh, well, that sounds awesome. I might sponsor the. Uh, Brazil team shorts myself and um, and the book I'm, I'm sure is going to be awesome so thanks for having you on thanks for uh, coming on the show Robert thank you